Stephen Mansfield, New York Times bestselling author and speaker. Doug Tenapel, I'm the creator of Earthworm Jim. Tweet groups. I'm Victor Dweck. Joseph Carter, I'm the Mink Man. This is Dave Baker from Forged and Fire. This is Liam Morgan. I'm a comedian, and this is why you should never, 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 don't ever, not ever. Don't waste your time. Oh, you really should. For listening to those darling, yummy Reverend and the Reprobate. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the Reverend and the Reprobate. I am Lucas Pinkard, I am the Reverend. Here with me, as always, is my partner in crime and a man who is trying to be the first unincarcerated generation. The first Gibson. Danley Gibson, so far. Yeah. So far. Doing good. I'm out of jail. So how's your mom doing? She is doing great. Yeah, I heard there was a little scuffle in the yard. She she had uh, she had to show you know some of the new people uh, who uh, who... You know how she got her name, right? Yeah, Ragin' Majin is a is an honest nickname. He, he said it, Mom, not me. I did. I say it every week. Uh, so, how's no, your she's great. how's your dad handling all of this? Um, her incarceration and and impending trial. He's fine. Well, hopefully things will work out in the appeals process. Yeah. Tonight, though, uh, speaking of appeals, we have on one of the most incredible apologists and yep. people who make appeals for the Christian worldview in the wonderful, fabulous, talented, and extremely out of, above our pay grade intellectual oh, yeah. oh, Nancy man. Pearson. We were, we were talking I... a little bit off air about how there were two people that we knew were going to be intellectually intimidating to us coming into the 2021. At least 20, two. I can't even say 2021. It's, it's two for sure. Right. At least two. These two for sure. Right. Probably like, likely <laughs> many more. <laughs> no, uh, Stephen Mansfield. Stephen Mansfield who, and Nancy Piercy. Who we have nervous talked to before, and Nancy Piercy, who we nervous talked to uh, on this although episode. Although this time we weren't suited up, and she did ask us, like, why aren't you in suits? <laughs> yeah. Because I, I guess cause we have some promo. In our promo pictures, we look much more professional than we do we're in real dressed life. Up, we're dressed for success. We're dressed to impress. I am. You are looking like... Um, I mean, a, I think I'm wearing a nice shirt. You're like a poor That's, man Steve Jobs, and you're... <laughs> In your, yeah. in your pictures. That's fine. Uh, so Nancy's that. on the show. She talks to us um, about her new book, Love Thy Body. Uh, she talks to us a little bit about her time with Francis Schaefer and the two-level worldview. Um, she talks a lot about this book right here, Saving Leonardo. There's Love Thy Body. Uh, she talks about these two things with us about what it's like to be a cultural apologist, which is a little bit different than somebody that just defends their face but actually uses culture in order to talk to people about their Christian worldviews. It's really um, informative. It is like – I will tell you this. Watch this interview twice because it is like – Taking information from a fire yeah. hose. Yeah. And I, I say like five words. But they were the best five words of this season. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. All right. I mean, without further ado. I could probably do better, but. Uh, like, subscribe, but, ding the bell. But. Nancy Pierce. All right, well, Danley, on our airwaves today is Nancy Piercy, who I am so excited to get to interview. She is the author of Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality, as well as The Science of the Soul, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, Total Truth, which if you are a member of First Baptist Church Lake Dallas, or you've been keeping up with the stuff we're doing online, that's the book we'll be going through in the fall of next year, talking about cultural apologetics. Uh, she's a professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She's been highlighted by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as the preeminent evangelical prominent female or Protestant female intellectual, which is a huge mouthful. 
people. And I have to say, I, I would take away most of the things at the end of that. Christianity Today and The Economist should just say she is a preeminent evangelical Protestant intellectual. She's one of the most brilliant people um, that we have in Christianity right now during this time. So without Professor further ado, Professor Nancy, Nancy Piercy. Piercy. How are you, ma'am? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that enthusiastic introduction. I appreciate it. If there's one thing we do well, it's it's introductions. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of this is just going to be off the rails. Um, I cannot thank you enough, um, Professor Piercy, for your contribution to my congregation, my personal education uh, through your books. A lot of the studies that we do are based off of a lot of the cultural apologetics that you talk about and that you practice. Um, much of what you write is based off of Francis Schaeffer's work. And so before we get too far into your books, I know that you studied under Dr. Schaefer for a while, and I was wondering if you could give us a quick education on the two-story principle that you talk about specifically in Chapter 1 of Love Thy Body that Dr. Schaefer developed and you continue to build upon so that we can have a good foundation for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, this was certainly one of the most important themes that I got when I studied at Liberty. I, I don't know if, if you know this, but I actually became a Christian at Libri. Oh wow! Because um, I went as an I went there as an agnostic. I had um I had I was raised Lutheran, and I okay. say Lutheran rather than Christian, because I don't know if you know this, but Scandinavians are all Lutherans, just like Italians are all Catholic. You are. It's a very it's a very ethnic thing. <laughs> and uh, so it was it was about in high school, about halfway through high school, I started asking questions about you know how, how do we know this. Christianity is true. And that's all I was asking. How do I'm going to a public high school? All my schools, all my textbooks are secular. All my teachers are secular, and so I just started asking, how do we know Christianity is true? And unfortunately, none of the people in my life, none of the adults in my life, had any answers to that. There was no, there wasn't a lot of apologetics back then. I, I asked a Christian college professor, "Why are you a Christian?" And he said, "Works for me." Oh, wow. <laughs> That's it? Yikes. I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, and I thought I'd get something more substantial. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. So with that kind of Does response, anyone have any answers in any time? Yeah, <laughs> That's no what kidding. I that's exactly what I said. Here I was just a teenager, you know, about 16 years old. Yeah. And I said, you know, a Christianity, I guess, just doesn't have any answers. And I very intentionally set it aside and embarked on a, on a search for truth. I decided it was up to me to find truth. So uh, I decided if there was no God, there was no purpose to life, there was no meaning, there was no foundation for ethics. Um, there was no not even foundation for knowledge. You know, I became even a, a, a skeptic because I figured if all I had was my puny brain in the vast scope of time and space, the idea that I could know absolute universal truth was absurd, ridiculous. And that seemed obvious to me that it was you couldn't hope to have any sort of real truth. At any rate, so you can see I was just I was prime material for ending up at Libri <laughs> uh, because I had already become a relativist and a skeptic and a, and a determinist. I decided we're just biochemical machines anyway, so there's no free will. Um, so I had absorbed all of these isms from the secular world. And when I went to Labrie uh, for the first time, I met Christians who were actually excited about talking about those things. Oh, Up wow. until then, when I raised my questions, you know, with Christians, the 
they always gave the impression there's something wrong with you, that you have these questions. Uh, whereas at Labrie, it was, oh, goody. <laughs> we get to talk about interesting stuff with you. <laughs> so it was it's, it was quite impressive. And um, it was eventually, it took, you know, it took a year and a half, but eventually I did become a Christian uh, through Labrie. And one of the, to answer your question, one of the most important themes that Schaefer uh, talked about was the concept of truth itself has been divided. In other words, most cultures, most civilizations have known that there's a natural order and there's a moral spiritual order. And they thought that they were both integrated into a single cosmological structure. There's a single cosmos and therefore there's a single truth that applies to all, all of life and all of reality. But in the modern world, since the rise of modern science, people began to say, no, 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 no. The only reliable knowledge we have is what we know by science, by empirical research, objective laboratory testing. And anything that you can't study under a test, you know, uh, stuff into a test tube and study under a microscope is not really not really true, not really real. So what does, what does that mean for things like theological truths mm -hmm. or moral truths? And people just decided they're not really truths. They are personal preference, personal feelings, you know, your own private experience, what gets you through the night. Right. And so Schaefer used uh, to, to, to describe how truth had been split apart, he used the imagery of two stories in a building. So that science and empirical facts won the lowest story of the building and theology and morality had been thrown up into the story where they were no longer considered really matters of true or false at all, but just, you know, what what's meaningful to you. And the reason this was so important is that this is the main reason that human yeah, Christians have a hard time um, communicating Christian truth to their secular neighbors, is that when we make a truth claim, when we say Christianity is true, they automatically, unreflexively, you know, it's a knee-jerk response, they throw it into the upper story, where they think you're just making a statement about your personal preferences. And they don't even hear it as an objective truth claim. And so for many people today, you have um, a two-step process. You have to help them understand what you even mean by truth right. before you can explain that Christianity is, is true. And to make this personal, this is exactly what I had to go through when I was at Labrie. I was such a relativist and skeptic that I first had to be persuaded that there was such a thing as objective truth before I could even consider whether Christianity might be that truth. So that's why it's such an important concept, because it really affects our ability to communicate Christianity uh, with secular people today. So what can, you know, we as, as pastors, as parents, as educators, what can we do to help, uh, especially children and young Christians, build a proper foundation for, for truth, not just for them to be able to share with their friends, but also for themselves? Because they are going to be in this secular culture where they're going to be told that, you know, that your truth, my truth, that it's all relative. What can we do to help build a foundation of, of solid biblical Christian worldview truth? Yeah, well, we have the same division in the Christian world to some degree. We just call it the sacred-secular split. Right. But it has a lot of the same impact. In other words, we tend to think that Christianity applies to the sacred realm, to Sunday, to church, to Bible study, 
to our prayer meeting, but we often don't really know how to apply Christian truth to the rest of life, to what we do politically, to what we do at our jobs, to what we do with our leisure time. You know, we don't look a whole lot different from the rest of the world. So I think the, the first step is to really help people overcome the sacred secular split. And I have to tell you, um, th th that's the whole theme of my book, Total Truth. It's how to, un you know, how to climb out of the sacred secular divide and, and really understand how Christianity applies to all of life. And uh, to tell you the truth, it's, uh, I'm kind of surprised to find that the, that message is more needed today than it was when I wrote the book. Yeah. <laughs> I've, you know, I'm teaching at a Christian college now, and it's very hard to, to um, help Christians realize that Christianity is not just for what you do in your prayer meeting in your dorm, you know, but that it actually applies to all of the subject areas that we study at the university. So that's the first step I, I would think is get out of the, when people talk about a Christian worldview, often that's what they mean. They mean get out of the sacred secular split and realize Christianity is meant to be a way of viewing the entire world. That's yeah. what worldview means. Yeah, that's been what, so the week that we're recording this, um, cause this will actually air in a, in a few weeks. There is a, a release of a shoe that is called the, the Satan shoe, which was a, a group of people that took a shoe from a shoe company. We'll leave them out of it because there's a, a pending lawsuit. It looks like mm -hmm. a cease and desist letter was issued this afternoon and they've taken it and had made it. Um, they put a pentagram on the tongue piece and uh, actually used a, a scripture way out of context in order to rationalize the shoe. And there are things like that that are coming into the Christian purview, right, that are just part of the day-to-day -day things that our, our students and, and even that, that we as adults are seeing on Instagram, on Facebook, and all of all of the social media stuff, that the platforms that we see we're being fed this. And those are areas where the secular view is pushing itself into every little bit of what we do. If, they're, if it can be pushed onto our shoes— which now contain like one drop of blood from the manufacturer is what this actually has in it. The, the discussion with our kids has to be more than just on Sunday mornings. I, I think that's essentially what you're saying is even those kind of things have to be talked about. We need, we need Mike Lindell to come out with a shoe. <laughs> the my shoe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm sorry about that. But it might be good to um, get back to your original question, which was, uh, questions that I cover in my book, Love Thy Body, because right. that's really being pushed everywhere as well. In fact, um, the Equality Act is has already been passed by the U.S. Senate, uh, excuse me, by the U.S. House, and it's now uh, being considered by the Senate, um, in which case it's it's going to be pushed on us by law, and right. not just by cultural pressures. So how does this uh, two-story view of truth help us to understand the the issues uh, related to abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. And I'll, let me start with the most obvious one. The most obvious one is transgenderism. Right. Because essentially what's happened is once you had the two-story view of truth, a you know, a divided concept of truth, that division is going to show up everywhere because your view of truth influences everything. And so it, it shows up in terms of a... Um, a dualism or divide or dichotomy within the human being itself. So that transgender activist will say, your biology is not part of your authentic self. Your biological sex has nothing to do 
with your gender identity, that your gender identity is strictly a matter of feelings, a matter of uh, you know, in your inner sense of self. So that would be a very sharp dichotomy between your body, your biology, your anatomy, your physiology, you know, which is all said to not matter at all. Right. And oh, yeah, so that would be the lower story, right? If you, if you keep the metaphor of two stories in a building, that's what we know by science. We know your body and your physiology by science. But then in the upper story is your gender identity. And that's purely a matter of private feelings. No one can challenge it. It's completely disconnected from anything that's verifiable. Um, so it's, it's the two-story divide applied to the human being, where what we know by science is the body, but you know your, your true self, your authentic self, is in the upper story, where it's completely postmodern, uh, disconnected from any physical reality. So that would be an example where this um, two-story divide uh, of course, it goes much further than Schaefer realized because right. he didn't have, he didn't have issues like transgenderism to deal with. Um, but it turns out that it's extremely helpful in understanding what the secular world is saying on these issues like transgenderism. Yeah, that is that is the the crux of love thy body. One of the things that I think is is interesting is the way that um, this one thing applies to so many different areas. You know, you mentioned uh, abortion, transgender, same-sex attraction, uh, but also the idea of geriatric euthanasia, which if anybody has read uh, How Should We Then Live, um, it's one of the things that, that Schaefer talked about was both uh, abortion and geriatric euthanasia as uh, an issue that could happen if we continued in uh, in this line of thought and in this way of thinking. So I want to go back. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your your book, Saving Leonardo, because I finished it before I, I read Love Thy Body, and I absolutely loved Saving Leonardo. Um, not just because uh, as a, an artist and as a musician, it speaks a lot to the things that I was interested in and that I grew up really loving, but also because you you write about how art and culture reflect one another. And I don't think that a lot of people, that while they wouldn't consider themselves art critics, that they would be able to quickly identify how they can use a, uh, a Christian worldview to interpret the things that are being communicated to them through art, through music, through television um, and movies, and what are ways that we can talk to each other? What are ways that we can talk to our kids? What are ways that we can share our faith um, when we're looking at things that are in the arts? Yeah, this again, you know, was part of the Schaefer legacy. He was the, one of the first people in the Christian world to say, we need to have a Christian worldview understanding of the arts. He encouraged a lot of Christians to go into the arts, but also to treat the arts as sort of a um, a way to have the pulse, your finger on the pulse of the culture. Like artists, art also reveals a worldview. And I find that even in Christian circles, it's sometimes hard to get people to understand that because they, they've been so influenced by a romantic view of the arts, romantic as in capital R, romantic, the mm -hmm. romantic period, uh, which taught that art was just about internal feelings. And, you know, I'm just expressing my feelings. And that's actually not true. If you look at it historically, you can see that every major art movement was influenced by some philosophy. And it's a wonderful way to learn, to learn both philosophy and art history at the same time. I am teaching this book right now, by the way, uh, this, uh, Saving Leonardo. I'm teaching in my class right now um, at HBU. Awesome. And it's, 
students who get through it have a very good introduction to philosophy and introduction to art to history as well. And I have a, a digital study guide that also has links to music. So we get the whole, Ooh, get the whole oh, thing. Oh, that's kind of <laughs> awesome. That's a well-rounded education. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. One of my students who was an undergraduate, he, he was um, it was his last semester. And uh, he finished the course and he said, I feel like I've become an educated person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's true. And, and that's the goal. You know, Christians should be educated persons. Uh, so in love that in um, saving Leonardo, um, let me see if I can give you a, an example, just because um, an example speaks louder than words. Um, so everybody knows what a cubist painting is. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they, uh, you know, Picasso, right? Yeah, like they, Picasso. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Picasso, they, breaking things down into little uh, squares and rectangles. Then you say, well, but why? Why did they think that's what a painting should be? Well, it turns out that they were influenced by a philosophy called rationalism that says, you know, the most certain form of knowledge we have is mathematics, geometry. Mathematics was mostly defined as geometry back to the ancient Greeks, you know, Pythagoras, the guy who we named the, the, the theorem. Pythagorean yeah. theorem. Yeah. yeah. I All know this. Pythagoras. <laughs> 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 it had been thought that, uh, you know, the, that mathematics and geometry gives us the sort of the hidden blueprint of the universe. You're right. Uh, so the rationalists were trying to say, if we could just break everything down into the underlying geometric structure, that will give us this sort of mystical insight into the um, the blueprint that underlies all of reality. So that's what they were saying with cubist art. They were, you know, they weren't saying, "Oh, this is pretty," <laughs> because if you w look at a cubist painting, a lot of times it's not aesthetically beautiful. Right. It, it was, but they didn't care. That was not their main point. Their main point was to give expression to a rationalist worldview. So that helps a lot as Christians, you know, um, trying to make sense of the images around them. A lot of them have a history like that, where they, they grew out of the attempt to express some sort of worldview and to be well, um, to, to be well-rounded Christians, we really should learn the language of the arts. In other words, every art is a language, right? A language right. of sounds. If it's music, it's a language of sounds, a language of images. Um, a language of um, composition, you know, the, the paint, the composition of a painting, and so on. Um, and it, it's, it's. I think it's imperative for Christians to learn that language, so that we can recognize worldviews when they come to us, not necessarily in words, where they're easier to recognize, but when they come to us through images and sounds and music and so on. We should know how to uh, read, read the worldviews that come to us in these artistic forms. Yeah, I don't know if that makes me like Picasso more or less knowing <laughs> knowing that. I remember a few years ago I had the opportunity to go to Spain and the giant painting Guernica, like we were standing in front of it and it's it's huge. It's the size of a wall. And the, each one of the different things that was represented there and a part of it and there were people that were trying to tell us like, no, this is how Picasso felt about the world. But what you're saying is that this is Picasso trying to express how he felt about the world, but from a, a philosophical standpoint, not like expressing the inner feelings that he has. Is that correct? Absolutely. And one of the things that's so important to recognize is that people think saying that the artist is just expressing his feelings, that didn't really happen until the romantic movement. 
And, and not all artists accepted that. Not all artists accept it today. Many artists today are still, uh, you know what, you can think of it as the same divide. Remember we were talking about the two-story divide mm -hmm. that came from Francis Schaeffer. Well, uh, once your concept of truth is divided, everything is divided. And so, you know, when I was writing Saving Leonardo, I didn't necessarily expect to find it there. You know, I wasn't trying to impose this on everything I studied, but the first book I picked up in my research, it was by Jacques Bauzan, who's a very well-respected intellectual historian. I, I picked up the first book and it said, modern art has split into two streams. <laughs> <laughs> and it, he called it the naturalist stream, which is obviously the lower story, and then the idealist stream, which is the upper story. And I said, oh my goodness, here it is again. And sure enough, as I continued to research, you could find there were, there were artists who were trying to express a very naturalistic view of the world. So that would be, Cubism would be an example because he's, he's, a, he's they're being influenced by rationalism. And right. then there's sort of the upper story, which is romanticism. And it's a romantics who said, oh no, we're not trying to portray anything objective. We're trying to just uh, convey our inner subjective experience. But both of those... Uh, have have both of those streams are still in existence today and it'll be a whole lot easier when you um, try to make sense of modern art to recognize okay for, for picasso he's trying to portray something objective about the structure of the universe but if you go to um mark rothko say mark rothko has a chapel here in um houston okay called the roth you guys you guys you guys are from texas you may have heard of the rothko chapel yes mm-hmm so Mark Rothko is an upper story artist. <laughs> so he's trying to uh, convey some kind of a mystical experience. And he's decided that he's de he, he investigated his um, Jewish background. Okay. So he investigated all the religions that he was, you know, basically all the major religions and finally decided that any one concept of the divine is too narrow, it's too restrictive. And so he paints these huge single color canvases and I took you know I took some students to the Rothko Chapel and they're like what is this it's just huge single color <laughs> um panels right uh, they were ready to leave in less than five minutes because it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's not visually interesting right they're yeah. all the same color <laughs> and they're all one color and they're all the same color so I had to tell them, okay, to get into this, you have to know what he was trying to say. What he's trying to say is that any one concept of the divine is too restrictive, and therefore we have to have, uh, we have to somehow convey that ultimate reality has no boundaries, has no limits, has no defining features. And you have you realize, of course, that um, after Mark Rothko painted those panels. Before the museum even opened, he committed suicide. Whoa. Because a concept of the divine that is impersonal and completely undefined is not enough to answer the need of the human heart. The person who commissioned the paintings was asked, you know, what, what are they about? And she said, this is a direct quote, she said, He's trying to paint the silence of God, the unbearable silence of God. Hmm. So that's what he was about. Now, you wouldn't know that. Like I said, my students were like, this, this, is, this is not visually interesting. I'm out of here. 
But you have to know the worldview that was driving him to understand why he painted these big, boring panels yeah. <laughs> is because he was actually trying to paint the silence of God, the unbearable silence of God. And he took it very seriously. I've, I've had students um, who say, yeah, I bet he was laughing all the way to the bank, you know, putting sure. this over as artwork. No, he so. wasn't laughing. <laughs> he that, killed himself. That's yeah. how seriously he took this. Wow. Yeah, that, that's so not that's, a funny title. That is a serious quote. Yeah. The unbearable silence of God. That's a powerful quote, too. It, it really is. And one of one of the things I, I really appreciated about Saving Leonardo was that I, I did feel the same way that many of your students do. I felt like I got an education from it and that the, so much of the modern art that I just thought was awful whenever I was growing up. I'm like, how is this art? You know, like Jackson Pollock to us was always a joke. Because we felt like, oh, well, any, any kid has painted a Jackson Pollock at some point in their life because it's just, it's a mess. Well, he was trying to convey the things that he felt and thought about the world through his worldview and the philosophies with which he studied. Existentialism. Yeah. He was influenced by existentialism. And he was trying to portray that there's no boundaries. He was the first person to, to draw totally unbounded figures. Um, uh, and that was his goal. It's just so, say, there's no boundaries. There's nothing that makes you human. Um, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher, Sartre said, there is no human nature because there is no God to have a conception of it. And therefore, there's no morality. There's no objective morality because there's nothing that's intrinsic to, you know, as a human, this is how you should live, right? This right. to be fully human, to be fulfilled, to be to to fulfill the ideal of what a human being should be. You know, that's what morality is. If there is no ideal, then there is no morality. And for Sartre, the existentialist philosopher, he said you just have to cast yourself into the flux of evolution. You know, evolution is life is just an evolutionary flux, a flow, and you just jump into the flow and try to create yourself from the flow. Um, and and you, you have to create yourself just by your own actions. And that's why Jackson Pollock was called an action painter. Because Sartre said, you there is no God, there's no God to define who you are. So you have to define who you are by your actions. And it's no mistake. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that that style of painting was called action painter because wow. he was trying to, by the, by the sheer flow of the paint, you know, remember, he's just dripping and flowing the paint. He's, right. he's not even, you, you, if you know Jackson Pollock, you know he that he's- He wasn't even um, trying. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not portraying images or objects at all. It's just the flow of the paint. So- you see how, in a way, by showing a sheer flow of paint, he was saying life is just the sheer flux, the evolutionary flux, and you enter into it by your action. So as a very, once you know the background, it's a very explicit ex, um, expression of existentialist philosophy. Wow. So looking at the way that your your works kind of intertwined with saving leonardo and especially with love thy body which is uh, i believe your most recent and and the one that is influencing a lot of the ways that we do things at our church in particular is where do you think that those two things come together how do you think that the art of today is pushing people to devalue their bodies and make that separation between who they are mentally and emotionally from who they are biologically within god's created order 
Oh, yeah, I'm glad you put it that way, because um, what I find that Christians have a hard time, uh, you know, with my most recent book, Love Thy Body, <laughs> you know, it's called Love Thy Body because of what you just said. I'm trying to help people to realize that the answer, the Christian answer hinges on having a higher view of the body and that the, helping them to see that the secular view actually has a, a you know, a, is a, a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. So um, let me give you the example from homosexuality. Um, since that, that and transgenderism are sort of the cutting edge. Yeah, yeah, those are the, the two it. biggest, yeah. So even my homosexual friends will agree that physiologically, biologically, anatomically, males and females are correspond to one another, right. complement one another that humans are a sexually reproducing species. Yeah. To embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is essentially to deny that design. It's to say, well, why should my body shape my sense of myself? Why should my, my biological sex have any say in my moral choices? And so what we have to help people see is that's a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. It's saying that even though I'm clearly biologically oriented toward the opposite sex, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. That's not going to define my moral choices. That's not going to define my identity. Um, uh, let me give you an example from a woman who is a lesbian. She's fairly well known, public intellectual named Camille Paglia. Okay. You, you guys, you I'm know familiar her. with Camille, yep. Okay, Camille Paglia. So she's a lesbian. Um, and, and, and a, a feminist, but she's somewhat of an uh, iconoclastic feminist, which is why Christians read her. Right. Um, and she's, uh, for example, she does not think sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Uh, nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. So then you ask her, well, how do you justify then being a lesbian? And her, her, this is her exact words. She said, why not defy nature? Nature made us male and female, but why not defy nature? After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So that's the logic behind homosexuality. It's, it's uh, nature made us this way, but if nature is a product of blind material forces, if nature is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, then our bodies have no intrinsic purpose. They give us no clue to our identity. They give us no moral message. We may do with them as we see fit. So that drives us even one step further. The ultimate question then at the, at the base of all of these issues is, are we products, you know, our bodies are part of nature. So is nature a product of mindless, purposeless forces, in which case there's no purpose, no intrinsic purpose that we are morally obligated to respect? Or is nature a product of a loving creator who had us in mind when he created us, who has a purpose for us? And our bodies are therefore the, you know, the handiwork of God and we should respect them. And we should take our identity from our bodies. We, sh we should, you know, we're holistic beings. And we should take our bodies into account when we decide who we are and how we should live. So that's the 
that's the ultimate, the ultimate stance is, do we even think nature has value and dignity? You know, uh, and our bodies being part of nature. Uh, what's interesting is even secular people are starting to see that this is the issue. Um, I read an interview with a 14 year old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years. She is uh, identified as a boy at age 11. Oh, wow. And then reclaimed her identity as a girl at age 14. And she said, and this, these are her exact words. She said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And this was in a very secular liberal website. Mm-hmm. Had, had, she, had she started hormone replacement or, or puberty any, blockers any or anything like that? Um, I think she had done some puberty blockers. I don't remember that she gave all the details in her, you know, she certainly had socially transitioned. Right, socially yeah. transitioned as we have a male name and, and male clothing and so on. Um, but uh, this, this interview came out yeah. after Love Thy Body had already had already been published, but it would have been a great interview. Oh, no kidding. To, to, to quote in a book called Love Thy Body. Right. So even secular people, if you read uh, articles on transgenderism, critical of transgenderism, you'll find that even they are starting to say that transgender transgender ideology represents body hatred, body hatred. And so the message of love thy body and respect your body, that Christianity offers a basis for really respecting who God made us to be. Um, uh, here, here's how one woman put it. She lived as a lesbian for, for several years. I, I tell this, the story in uh, Love Thy Body. She lived as a lesbian for several years, and today she's married and has two children. Married to a man. You have to say that these days. Right. Uh, um, and has two children. And here's, here's how she put it. She said, I came to, real, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Oh, wow. And I, that's the kind of language we need to cultivate. Honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. Respect my biological sex. Live in harmony with my body as God gave it to me. Trust that my body is a good gift from God so it's, uh, I think that I have found, you know, when I speak to churches and conferences and, and Christian schools and so on, the first hurdle that people have to get over is just the language. They're yeah. so used to saying, this is wrong, this is a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you do. That negative language is so in, entrenched in their mind that just getting over that and being able to reach out to a secular person or a Christian a Christian who's struggling with same-sex identity or gender, same-sex attraction or gender identity um, and, and be able to say, no, the reason we're reaching out to you is because God gave you this body and it is just good and you are meant to live in harmony with your body. I, I'll give you one more story from the from the book. Um, his name is Sean Doherty. Yeah, we were going to ask about Sean. You were going to ask about yeah, Sean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite stories in the book, really. I'm, I'm glad you were going to ask about it. So he was exclusively same-sex attracted. You have to say that these days because when people changed, the first thing critics say is, "Oh well, he was never really." Yeah, <laughs> he mm-hmm. was never really right. a homosexual or or trans. So he was exclusively same-sex attracted. And this is something I didn't say in the book, and I kind of wish I had. What's interesting about his story is that he grew up in a gay-affirming family. 
Okay. And attended a gay affirming church. Oh, wow. So he didn't think there was anything wrong with being homosexual. Yeah. He was not influenced in any way by a sense of shame or guilt. Right. But today he's married to a woman and has three children. And by the way, he's a Christian ethics professor. Oh, wow. In in London. Um, So what made him change then? He says, I decided to stop um, taking my identity from my sexual feelings and instead base, um, uh, base my identity on my body, to accept my body as a good gift from God, to accept that clearly God had made me male, right. which meant he had made me for sexual relationship with a woman. And if I accepted that as a good gift then I should base my identity on that. And he said, eventually my feelings followed suit. So he he's a great example, again, of somebody who said, the turning point was when I realized I can accept my body as a good gift from God. Again, that positive language. Right. And that's what I, ha- I want people to sort of take home is that when we talk about these issues with people, our, our approach should be, you know, God gave you this body, whether you're male or female, and he, you will be happier and healthier when you live in harmony with who you were made to be. Yeah, there's a there's a big movement right now, and we've seen this um, locally. We talk with with several of our our high school, our college students, and in in particular, the girls. It seems to impact more than it does the boys. Though we're seeing it in in both lines. We we had one girl in particular who was talking to us about her friend group, and that she is the only girl in her friend group that identifies as to use the language of the day. Uh, a, a cisgender heteronormative lady. So she's the only one that is the straight girl in her group and everybody else in her friend group identifies as either bisexual or asexual, whether or not they'll ever actually have, you know, any interaction with same sex or anything like that. The way that they identify is bisexual or asexual because really it's, it's a lot of societal influence. So when we have those kind of things that are happening, um, in, in the high school, in the junior high level, as as parents, as pastors, even, you know, we've got several teenagers and college students that listen to this podcast. How can we begin to have conversations that help our, our friends, our kids, uh, the people that we're ministering to, that help parents that we're working with? You know, how can we start to have conversations with them about honoring their body and, and using this type of language versus, you know, what you're, you're talking about before the, the sort of negative language that we've been using. Yeah, I have two answers to that. One is that there, the, the best study out there, really the first study, the first study done um, was by Lisa Littman, L-I-T-T-M-A-N at Brown university. And um, she found, she, she found that social contagion is a huge factor, right. you know, the, the peer group. You have whole peer groups coming out as trans at the same time. I mean, obviously, you don't have whole peer groups discovering their true authentic self at the same time. So it's quite clear that there's a lot of social contagion happening. Yeah, I think um, uh, Abigail Schreier cited that study in, in her book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, certainly she did. <laughs> um, and the other thing she found out was that 62.5% of the girls who are coming out, and it is mostly girls now, um, coming out as trans, had previously diagnosed mental health issues. Oh, mercy. 
in other words, before even coming out as trans, they had been diagnosed with mental health health issues like ADHD or autism. Autism is the most is the most common for some reason. Nobody knows quite why. Autism, um, depression, anxiety, and so on. And now a lot of teens have some depression and anxiety. Right. You you remember those days, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But these were kids who were troubled enough that they'd actually the parents had taken them in and got them and had a diagnosis. So the other thing we have to understand is these are very troubled kids. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something we should always keep in mind when we're dealing with them is um, we, we need to handle them very carefully because they are very troubled already. Thirdly, or for where, where yeah, I don't know how I got wherever it, we are in the number system, we, <laughs> number B. <laughs> the other story I want to tell, though, is um, I have a story in Love Thy Body. Um, it's, there's two kinds of transgenderism. The traditional kind showed up very early. What we're seeing now um, with what we're seeing now is a new kind showing up for the first time when when people are teenagers, right? So girls who've never shown any sign of gender dysphoria before are suddenly deciding that they're trans. It's so unusual um, that Lisa Littman in her study coined a term for it. She said, "Well, this is rapid onset gender dysphoria, you know, because it's just not the normal thing." So in Love Thy Body, though, I do tell a story of a young boy who 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 fit the classic. Uh, the classic uh, pattern for gender dysphoria in that he show, it, it showed up before he was even walking. Oh, wow. It, you know, it, it showed up that he was, um, he was, <laughs> while he was still crawling, his babysitter said to his mom, he's too good to be a, he's too good to be a boy, by which she meant he's quiet, compliant, gentle, oh, obedient all the Nothing things like that we your typically kid. <laughs> <laughs> or, or me yeah, yeah not not like us at all <laughs> no well extremely unusual i mean really at the extreme and uh, when he was in preschool when his mom came to pick him up every day he was playing with the little girls and not the little boys by elementary school he was coming to his parents repeatedly weeping and saying I think like girls do, I'm interested in the things girl, girls are. God should have made me a girl. Mm. So you can imagine what that's like for, for, for parents no you, for several years. And then by age 14, he was scouring the internet for information on sex reassignment surgery. So what did his parents do? First of all, they made sure he knew that they loved him just the way he was. I have had friends, I had a friend in, in when I was in seminary who was a former homosexual who said uh, he liked music and art and his dad kept trying to toughen him up by uh, pu pushing him into sports and other things mm -hmm. that were more masculine. Yeah. So uh, this little boy, I called him Brandon. Um, Brandon's parents did not do that. They said it is perfectly okay for you to be a sensitive, emotional, relational boy. Yeah. It does not mean you're really a girl. So they really affirmed him on, on, on saying he was, you know, that God made him this way and that this was good. Oh, they said God has probably uh, equipped you for one of the caring professions, right? Um, okay. Yeah. Counselor, psychologist, healthcare worker. Um, they took him through the gifts of the spirit. You know, the gifts of the spirit are not divided by sex. Right. 
you know, um, encouragement, prophecy, grace, prophecy. yeah, those kind of things. Yeah. Well, prophecy and teaching are not masculine, right. as we might expect, and mercy and service are not feminine, as we might think. Um, they even took him through things like the Myers Briggs personality test, if you guys oh, yeah. are familiar with that. Yeah, <laughs> and v- said, very much. <laughs> Danley's an INT jerk. <laughs> I, I think I am an INTJ. Yeah. And what are you? Uh, I am e an, something. I'm an E, and then all the rest e of them plus, change. Plus, plus. Yeah, the rest of mine change based on the day of the week. So, yeah, I'm yeah. a very moody extrovert. That's what I. Yeah. That's what I am. Yeah, I, I could tell you an extrovert. That was obvious. <laughs> and I'm just sitting over here listening, like in like a good introvert. <laughs> but you notice that the whole range. It's open to both men and women. Right. You know, yeah. that, Except for that, bench pressing. That's typically men. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, that's not part of the character. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not one of the gifts but... of the spirit. No. <laughs> bench pressing, 225. <laughs> okay, INTJ. We'll yeah. <laughs> yeah, get, get back in your introvert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, the point is that they affirmed him. Oh, by the way, and I should I should tell you the end of the, the, end of the story was this. Um, finally, in his early 20s, he finally told his parents that he had accepted that he would never be a girl. He said, even if I got the surgery, it would not give me what I want. That's how he put it. It would not give me what I want. It would not make me a girl. You know, there's a very famous TED talk that says the, the tagline is every cell has a sex. Every cell has a sex. Yeah. Has a, you're either male or female. And you cannot change every cell in your body. So mm-hmm. clearly, you know, so, so Brandon did accept, fortunately, that, um, that his, his, his male identity finally, although he's still a very um, unusual young man. Right. <laughs> you know, he's still way over on the uh, one side of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that to say, um, studies have shown that the most reliable indicator of non-heterosexual outcomes in adulthood, that is either uh, same-sex attraction or transgender identity, the most reliable predictor is is, uh, behavior in childhood. In other words, cross-sex behavior in childhood, non-gender conforming behavior, as they call it, in childhood. Far more reliable correlate than anything genetic. It's not genetic primarily. It's how you behave in childhood. And what that means is that at churches and in families, we can be on the lookout for children who are likely to have these difficulties. And we can start giving them affirmation, support, and love from a very early age. So like Brandon's parents who, you know, decided right from the beginning, we are going to support the way he is and tell him it's okay to be this kind of a boy. Remember, these boys are going to be bullied and made fun of because they are non-gender conformed. And the women too. Look, I have lots of female students over the years who've been gender non-conforming, who've been assertive, rational, take charge, you know, CEO type material. (laughs) And and they feel equally out of it. They feel like they're they're not fulfilling the Christian model of womanhood. And and they come to me troubled as well. A lot of them are INTJs, by the way. <laughs> or even or even worse, they're ENTJs. Hi, we have problems. Yeah, we're trying to figure life out still. 
Well, it's easier for a man to be an IE teacher, uh, but it, you know, it's 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 not as easy for a woman because you know they're not they're not soft and feminine, and you know right. mm-hmm. they are they are the type they are the type who are going to be in charge of something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's on both sides. We need to watch out for the kids who are non-gender conforming. Uh, not because anything wrong with that, but because they are going to feel bullied. They are going to feel like they're out of step with their peers. And uh, in fact, I'm trying to think, at least three women I know who are lesbian are INTJs. Really? By the way. Yeah, yeah. Because they, you know, they just don't feel feminine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all mechanics. <laughs> I think, and I think that, that's one of the yeah that's one of the descriptors of it too yeah yeah that uh, a mechanic is a good job for an INTJ yeah, yeah. that makes sense um, able to, to diagnose issues gruff and and intellectually <laughs> like can solve Analytic. problems yeah yeah so th- this th- this always makes me think of these types of conversations always makes me think of uh, the show Frasier <laughs> because if you think about the show Frasier, well, well, Frasier and Niles both had a lot uh, because they were influenced by their mom. They're very fussy. They they are very fussy, but they also they love they the don't opera. Get their dad, or their they, dad doesn't get them. right. They like yeah. the finer things in life. And Marty spent a lot of his years trying to toughen them up. And when the dad comes to live in the house, they go through all of these things about how they were bullied because they were effeminate or they dressed nice and this, that, and the other. And so Frasier is actually one of the things that I use because the dads that we talk to that are having boys that are more interested in the arts and those kind of things, they can totally relate to Marty. They want the ugly chair in the middle of the room. They don't want with anything else fancy. Yeah. The dog and, that they relate to perfectly with yeah. their sons. <laughs> yeah. And so that's uh, that's always a, an interesting thing to talk about. Well, uh, Professor Piercy, we want to be respectful of your time. We thank you so much for everything that you've given us thus far. At the end of all of our interviews, though, we've got a few questions now. Your son, who does your, your bookings, Michael, has been phenomenal. And we don't know if he gave you the heads up on our last segment called Controlled Rowdiness. We sent him some of the questions to make sure that they would be things you would be interested in answering. Even gave him the opportunity to participate a little bit. Um, but he opted out of that one because he said he didn't want uh, he didn't want blood on his hands for this one. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, these questions are just going to be kind of rapid fire, whatever the first thing is that comes to your head. Um, just give us an answer because we like to end with a little bit of fun. And so our very first question, Daniel, if you'll get us started. You should have given me more time. Yeah. Uh, so my my favorite scientist, Rick Sanchez, says <laughs> that school is not a place for smart people. Do you agree with that or not? Largely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's a win. All right. Uh, question number two. What is your favorite Monty Python movie? Well, you know, I've, I think I've only seen one. It was the one with the killer bunny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the quest for the Holy Grail. <laughs> Holy Grail. That's, and, you, and, you and, cannot And I have a, a, a fun follow-up to that. Uh, I was watching, uh, I saw, what's the ballet, um, the Tchaikovsky ballet that you see every Christmas? The Nutcracker. The Nutcracker. Yeah. So I watched the Nutcracker once, and during the the big opening scene where there's a party going on, there's a guy. There was a guy sitting over on a the toy chest, uh-huh. and, and and on the toy and I don't think this was scripted. On the toy <laughs> chest, among the among the uh, toys was a stuffed bunny. <laughs> he, st- he started doing the killer bunny routine <laughs> in the midst of a Tchaikovsky ballet. Oh, amazing. <laughs> It was hilarious. Oh, what a hero. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so as well as being an award-winning author, you're also an accomplished musician, 
which not very many people probably know. So in the Charlie Daniels classic, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, the devil challenges Johnny to a fiddle competition. What do you think your chances would be if the devil played violin? Well, you know, I'm just, I don't play fiddle. I, I really play classical music. Bach is my favorite. Oh, wow. So we'd have to get, we'd have to see if the, if the devil would be willing to play some Bach with me. Well, <laughs> I, we, we think that the devil would be too intimidated to challenge you. So that's, that would be the final answer. So if you did play against the devil, what song would you play first on the golden fiddle, uh, the golden violin, the golden violin in, in this yeah. case, that you won? <laughs> um. Bach, Bach's favorite instrument was the was the um, organ. Okay. And once once he was, um, I, I I don't remember why he was away from his organ. I think it's because he he had to he had to accompany the the nobleman who was his patron right on a vacation. So he's away from his favorite instrument. So he made the violin sound like an organ Ooh. by playing multiple strings at once. Um, Ooh, these cool. are called his partitas and sonatas. Um, and they're amazing. They're the best. It's just obviously the absolute best thing out there. I can't play most of them because they're obviously they're very different. It's very difficult to no play doubt. Multiple, multiple strings. Right. <laughs> so they're like chords, right? So yeah. everything's chordal. The whole thing's chordal. And anyway, um, when I get to heaven, <laughs> that's what I want to learn how to play. That sounds amazing. It'd be like you and Victor Wooten. Yeah, yeah, where he can do all of that cool stuff, and I'm like plucking on he's one a, he's string on, on the bass. Yeah. That would be absolutely awful. Um, what is your favorite way to tell people that they're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, so this is a serious question because you uh, you really do need how, to know how to do this. You right. always find your common ground first, if you can. Okay. Find common ground first. Um, and then... And then deviate. <laughs> <laughs> Find common ground first, we, and then we both like things deviate. that are correct, right? Yeah, we do. <laughs> you're not. You're not there. <laughs> you're over here. If we both like this, you are here. Uh, so Dan Brown famously wrote the Da Vinci Code. You wrote Saving Leonardo. Correct. Uh, when do you think that Leonardo made the cryptex? Wait, the cryptex. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> it's a really dumb movie. Based, yeah, that's, that's on one of the book. things. Yeah, that's one of the things in the Dan Brown books that Leonardo he, da Vinci yeah, he made. He makes a little Rubik's cube uh, cryptex, and he he gets a hint on where on where the next clues are. Uh, we'll move past it. Yeah, overall it's a bad joke. thoughts on thoughts on the Dan Brown book as far as Leonardo Ooh. da Vinci goes. Did he did Dan Brown get it right? <laughs> Did he get anything right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's what we wanted. <laughs> um, I, I'll tell you though, um, the reason I called it Saving Leonardo, since we're spending a little time on it, is that there was a quote that Francis Schaeffer used from. Uh, we got our copy right here. Yeah, it's, it's a quote from a. Hers is better. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's in the uh, it's in the frontispiece. Um, a quote from a Italian philosopher who was writing about. Uh, uh, about Leonardo, and he said, he talks about the anguish and the tragedy of this universal man divided between his irreconcilable worlds. And so since he was one of the first people to, to experience that uh, two-story truth that became such a potent theme in Schaefer's analysis, 
uh, Leonardo da Vinci was was trapped between kind of a the emerging the emerging scientific worldview and his artistic worldview. Right. And he did not know how to put them together. That's why the philosopher talked about his irreconcilable worlds. So that's why he becomes sort of the namesake for saving Leonardo. Is we need to save him yeah, <laughs> from, this, from this conflict that he's, he's trapped in. Well, our last question actually has to do with saving Leonardo, and we, we have... We, uh, we have several more questions. <laughs> we have several more <laughs> no, questions, um, but we know we're running out of time. So this is a... We've got a marketing idea for saving Leonardo. We do a show on Friday nights for... Uh, for It's a live show on some of the new Marvel movies and things that are coming out, so we have this marketing idea for you. We redo the cover of Saving Leonardo, and instead of all of the great pop culture references that you have on there, we just put four baby turtles on it and we market it to comic book stores what do you think my son would love it <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what that's kind of what michael said that he loves that idea okay very last question all right well, here we go. Actually, actually my oldest son was around when the teenage mutant ninja turtles were actually big i just love and that he, you know that <laughs> he, so he watched it he watched it a lot he was really into it so, that yeah. is so awesome yeah. we did, we did it was a big yeah. part of our life for a while yeah <laughs> and the video games and the action oh, figures yeah. and good stuff mm -hmm. uh, as a professor oh here we go uh, if if given the chance to teach at the premier wizarding oh, and witch school Hogwarts what what house would you be in Slytherin Gryffindor Hufflepuff Hufflepuff Ravenclaw, that Raven was the other Claw. one. We're sure we're both sure that you'd be the dark, the yeah, defense against dark you, arts. You would definitely be the defense <laughs> against the dark arts. Teacher. I, I don't know if you're into oh, Harry like Potter that. at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I like that because you know I was just um, I was just talking to some students about the two kinds of apologetics, um, and the uh, defensive apologetics um where you're answering questions like how could god send people to hell i call them the sunday school questions not right. because they're not important but because that's where you usually encounter them you know, young people saying um you know what does a trinity mean and um why isn't everyone saved and so on and then the the more offensive questions like why is Nietzsche wrong? Why is Marx wrong? <laughs> why is Darwin wrong? Those are the ones I like. You know, yeah. I what? like being on the why offensive is Dumbledore wrong? The sec secular views. <laughs> That's the kind of uh, apologetics that gets me excited. I guess because I, you know, because I was so immersed in those thinkers myself. You know, I was so taken in by them when I was young, and so I'm much more interested in. Um, in the dark arts. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. And, um... <laughs> and why Voldemort is wrong. Yeah. And so I guess that means Slytherin. Yeah, there you go. Well, uh, Professor Piercy, thank you so much. Remember, the book is called Love Thy Body, um, as well as Saving Leonardo. Total Truth is what we'll be studying in the fall. Also, Finding Truth is coming out. How Now Shall We Live? Is, yeah. uh, is one of her others, which is another great cultural apologetics book. Will the Absolutely senior phenomenal. citizens and I be studying that in the fall? You're, no, the senior citizens and you will not. Danley's in our senior citizens class, even though he's not of age. So, uh, <laughs> Professor Piercy, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. We, we greatly appreciate it. It was great fun. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Well. Yeah. It, uh... <laughs> I don't think there's any more room in my brain for knowledge. Yeah, there's there's a lot. I mean, I I found myself also Nancy freaking Piercy. Yeah, she's really cool. NFP, and she she's very 
graceful. She stayed on at the end. We talked for another 30 minutes yeah, or so. Yeah, probably without... close to it. Also, she did tell us we're not allowed to call her Nance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we were asking. So is it Professor Piercy? Is it Nancy? Should we call you Nance? And she goes, um, Nancy. You can introduce me as Professor Piercy, and if you want to make it more informal, you may call me Nancy. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, boy, it's been a long time since I feel like we've been that outmatched. Like, but I feel. Like, yeah. I, mean, I, 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 I mean, I I enjoy speaking speaking with people that um have had that amount of information. She right. made so many references to philosophers, to artists, and most of them I did not know. I will tell you that there's a lot of those references that she was like, you know who I'm I'm talking about, right? And I could say yes because I read her book and whenever I came across their name, I was like, well I gotta Google that. Who the heck is this oh, yeah. person? And so now when she's like, oh John Paul Sautier, I'm like, yes, I know who he is. Yeah. Because you talked role. about him and you, you <laughs> talked about him in your book. And I had to look him up. Yeah. Um so there's there's a lot of things that were like that. Her her studying with Francis Schaeffer, I think, is fascinating to me because I do think Francis Schaeffer was well ahead of his time and uh, has turned out to be a little prophetic in the way that he's talked about things. Um, but I loved Professor Piercy's just her, her way of explaining things is simplistic enough to where we can understand it. Mm hmm. And and I really enjoyed that. As an INTJ, I'm going to to, <laughs> to soak and, right. and stew on some of the things she said because right. there there was a lot. Like it's it was a lot. But my favorite part was uh, how to the those that that have that do struggle with gender dysmorphia or right. body uh, dysphoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of those, uh, you know how how to direct them how to help them mm -hmm. was was really coming from a place of love rather than a place of um yeah i'm trying to think of the exact words that she said yeah, well, she it was, said in, instead of being uh using it was, positive it was the negative yeah, it was the negative, negative uh language right. positive language which to me is coming from a place of love right you know that you know you know god did create you for a for a purpose and with it with a plan yeah is different than well, you're, you know, you need to quit, you need to quit acting like a girl or you need to, you know, it's very, it's, it's just a different approach. It's different, uh, worldview, I think. Yeah. The way to, well, we've talked a lot on and off the air about our dads and how our dads would be interested in the stupid stuff that we were interested in, right? If it was a TV show that they'd watch the TV show with us, you know, how many episodes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for, for instance, to reference something from, you know, the things we talked yeah. about with Nancy, did our dads watch? How many episodes of... Zero, I wasn't allowed to watch it. But, okay, there you go. <laughs> but but I mean, like, how many episodes of Batman? How many... Oh, sure. How many bad bands did they listen to that we thought were awesome? Creed. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Good grief. Um, Creed and, you know, Lord knows what else yeah. that our dads endured because it was it was things that we were interested in. I mean, Dad, Dad, I just learned this new guitar lick. Yeah, and like... And come and, in and I just play the higher oh, lick over and over and over and over. Sounded, it's a Creed song. Yeah, well, it, or it sounded like Groobs playing Under the Bridge. <laughs> Shout out, Groobs. We love you, buddy. Um, the, but there was so much of that that was just, just rough. And yeah. then even more so, like, coming out to our shows because our dads didn't make every show that we did, but they came down to downtown 
into areas, into like 21 and up clubs to come and watch us play, which mm-hmm. are not places where they would have gone otherwise and more places they were even that comfortable going or wanted to be other than her, their kids were participating in. Yeah. Essentially what she's talking about is doing the, the same thing just in other areas where you might not have interest. Yeah, if just, your kid likes opera, go to the opera. Yeah, just imagine going to like downtown Dallas or, or to, to uh, Deep Ellum right. in 10 years. It's not going to happen. Right. Right? Same for me. I'm yeah. like, no, I'm not driving no, down huh? there. No. Not a chance. Uh-uh. I've been working all week. Yep. I'm not going to Deep Ellum at no daggum 9.30 p.m. <laughs> to, like sit and listen, to sit there and listen to a to battle. I'm not going to go to Pacific Yeah, to listen to some battle of the bands between the you know four high school bands. Yeah. No, not doing it. It's going to be you guys and Benchmark uh-uh. and Grilled Cheese <laughs> and Alas Babylon, and I'm not interested <laughs> in cheese. going to see it. I would like, vote for Grilled Cheese. Yeah. This one's the name. <laughs> yeah, so those, those are things, though, that we'll never forget. Because we got yeah. that affirmation from from our folks, and uh, in the interview, I kind of likened it a little bit to Frasier, because that's the big. It was a great, well, great th- reference. That's the big argument that happens in Frasier between the dad and the sons. Mm-hmm. Is it the dad? It's the whole time too. Yeah. It's, it's how they are versus how he wants them to be. Right, and the, and the mom was attracted to the dad because he was he was a cop, he was masculine, he was rough around the edges. And the kids were attracted to he wore flannel to the mom. Yeah, he, he wore, liked hot dogs. Wore flannel all the yeah. He <laughs> loved hot dogs, and uh, and he had this horrible green chair that was in the middle of yeah. like all of these other like modern pieces that were really beautiful that Fraser had in his apartment. If you haven't seen the show, it's it's hysterical. Like Marin is that her name? Nineties. Marin was Niles's first wife. Maris. M- M- uh, Maris. Yeah, Maris yeah. was Niles's oh, first she wife. Was the, she was and, the worst. And for a long time. And I'm not gonna fanboy out for yeah. Fraser for very long but my favorite part was like he kept talking about her for years and yeah. we never got to see her never saw her. it was always just oh maris is dealing yep. with this this thing right now and uh-huh. well it, it was uh, and they're playing off of an old cheers trope where nobody ever saw norm's wife mm. that he always talked about vera but nobody actually ever saw vera mm. um that kind of thing because the fraser was a spinoff yeah, yeah, off of, yeah. off of he, Cheers. He was on for, Cheers. For those people who don't know. But uh, but the idea with the show is you have this very masculine figure dad and these boys that are very successful, but that are interested in reading classic literature and they don't drink scotch like he does. They drink sherry. <laughs> and they you know they go to the opera and they go yeah. spend like $100 on really nice dinners when he just wants to go down to the $8 cheeseburger joint and watch the mm-hmm. game. And they have no interest in sports. They have no interest in the same foods. Any of those things, but what happens in the show is that the gap is bridged, that they realize that the relationship that they want to have is available to them if they will all suck it up and just spend time with one another. And that is that's something that we're lacking today in the the household and the family in a lot of areas, but also in art and in culture. Right. One of the things that's pointed out in uh, in Trojan Mouse, which is talking about how Disney is winning the culture war. One of the things that's pointed out is that in most of the Disney movies, for instance, like Moana. Right. Moana has to rebel against her dad in order to save everything. Mm-hmm. Her dad is wanting to protect her, wanting to keep her safe. Very great. Dad. We don't go past the reef. Right. Very great dad characteristics. But yeah. how much more dynamic is that movie? If the dad comes to the daughter and says, look, you need to go past the reef. You are our only hope. I have to stay here and do this. I'm terrified that you're going to go. But if, you know, if this is it, then I'm going to support you and you're going to go. Well, now that whole movie changes. 
Mm-hmm. Now Moana has the confidence and the courage and, you know, she's got all of these things that the village is actually depending on her and that they care that she's out there instead of that she's sneaking the whole time. Well, that can be transferred really easily into these kind of parameters where if, you know, you you have a, a son, like she was talking about Brandon, who um, identifies with some more effeminate things, right? That maybe if you're a dad that, that only likes fishing or whatever and you don't get it. Right. You don't have to get it. You can just sit there with it. And whenever they, you know, whenever the kid has you watch the nutcracker and you think that it's terrible, you can just say, hey, you know what? I it's not my thing, but I loved that we got to spend time together. Mm-hmm. I am probably never going to like the nutcracker, but I loved that. I'm, I'm just glad we got to do something together. And that's how our dads were in a lot of. Heck, dude, that's how my mom is. I've dragged my mom to more awful concerts and stuff because I wasn't allowed to go alone that she had to endure for for that reason. She mm. didn't like anything, but that's what she said. I'm glad we got to spend time together. You looked like you were really enjoying yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd, and I think that that's that that's an important thing that she's she's putting forth is that it's that showing that we care, that we really love our kids, that we really love our our family members, that we love our friends who are in these situations, not so much that we we hate the behavior. Mm-hmm. Cuz that's always been the thing, right? Uh, love the sin or hate the sin, and like, that's a really cute thing to say at church, and it's it is an honest saying, but it's not something that's often played out because we're so focused on the things that we hate that that person's doing that oftentimes what we do is we project that onto them. Like I can't hang out with you until you do X, Y, and Z, or until you become this person. Well, that's not what our calling has ever been. We're just supposed to, to love people where they're at. And one of the things that Nancy talks about so much is affirming the things that are truthful within that. Mm-hmm. So I, even as an extrovert, there's so much for me to uh, to chew on There's here. a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Which, um, is, which is why I reverted to Rick and Morty. Yeah, <laughs> I did. My favorite scientist, Rick <laughs> Sanchez, which was uh, I thought was uh, a brilliant line. Oh, um, and and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's one that she didn't get, but I nope. do love that she didn't disagree. She agreed with, her with <laughs> she Rick agreed Sanchez. She agreed with Rick Sanchez. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which I will say means that we're probably smart. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll take it. That, Thank you, that's Professor Piercy. Jerry. Jerry. Smart people don't belong in school. That's what she said. Yeah. There you go. Don't listen to anything that we're saying. Yeah, don't. Uh, stay if in your school. parents tell you to go to school, stay in school. Don't do drugs. If, if do like have, and subscribe. And if you have a grandpa with a portal gun, it's okay to skip school. I don't know what Danley's talking about because I believe in Jesus. So if <laughs> if you guys um, will ding the bell, like, subscribe, uh, follow. Make sure that you check out uh, Professor Nancy Piercy. She's got... Tons of stuff that she's always publishing, um, not just in her books. She's got some phenomenal books that are there. The links are down in the show notes. But also, she's got some incredible things that she's publishing with her university things, the journals and things that she gets published in. She's got a blog that she's constantly updating. Make sure that you check those things out as well. Follow her on Twitter um, and tell your friends yeah. about The Reverend and the Reprobate. If you're listening audio only, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Yeah, give Five us a stars, review. Give us a like. We'd appreciate it. Appreciate it. Bye. Hello, I'm Nancy Piercy. I'm a scholar in residence and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. And here's why you should never listen to the Reverend and Reprobate show ever.
Stephen Mansfield, New York Times bestselling author and speaker. Doug Tenapel, I'm the creator of Earthworm Jim. Tweet groups. I'm Victor Dweck. Joseph Carter, I'm the Mink Man. This is Dave Baker from Forged and Fire. This is Liam Morgan. I'm a comedian, and this is why you should never, 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 don't ever, not ever. Don't waste your time. Oh, you really should. For listening to those darling, yummy Reverend and the Reprobate.